This is the Pain Information Network. Well, I was recently at the California Society of Interventional Pain Physicians and had a distinct honor of sitting with some of the most influential folks in regenerative medicine uh, in the United States and basically the world. They put on a really good symposium, and I, I got to sit in on that. Thank you very much, everybody. And I, I learned a bunch, and I got to corral them for a minute or two so we could sit down and learn a little bit what regenerative medicine is. It's really neat stuff. It is the future of medicine. If you can just imagine uh, taking tissues and developing a regenerative status on them, you know, it's not perfect. It doesn't always work, but... If it has that tremendous potential, think what we can apply to it. Uh, we could take a joint and hopefully turn around a joint. We could take uh, tendons, ligaments. We could take injured tissues. And I've seen some really remarkable stuff on uh, pressure sores and burns. So regenerative medicine is what's coming, and it's a wave. Basically what it is is it's a stem cell. A stem cell is something that hasn't figured itself out yet. It's this uh, little piece of tissue, and it, it doesn't have a role. Its surroundings tell its role. We've talked a little bit about this stuff, and these, uh, these distinguished physicians are going to tell us a lot more. So if you can imagine getting a treatment that may keep surgery at, at, a, at a real arm's length or actually help us improve our function and quality of life, uh, we're winning all day long. So that's what we're talking about today. And these folks are top of the tree when it comes to understanding that entire kind of cellular technology. So here it comes, and you don't need to be hearing me. Let's listen to them. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're at the uh, sixth annual California Society of Interventional Pain Physicians meeting at the beautiful Bacara Resort. This place is incredible. I'm going to start with you, Aaron. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you, Hans. My name is Aaron Kolodny, and I am an interventional pain management physician from Tyler, Texas. I practice as part of a neurosurgical spine group in Tyler, called Precision Spine Care at the Texas Spine and Joint Hospital, which is a specialty orthopedic and spine hospital, uh, about an hour and a half to two hours east of Dallas. I am the current president of the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians. I am a past president of the Texas Pain Society. And I was a board member of the Spine Intervention Society for years and directed education for that group for several years. Yeah, that's no little deal. Tyler, Texas is well known throughout the country as being uh, a hotbed of progressive pain care. And uh, sitting next to you, George, tell us what we're going to talk about today. And then you tell us about yourself. Uh, this is George Chang Chen. I uh, am a physiatrist. I am the medical director for pain management at Ventura, Ventura County Medical Center. Uh, I also have a regenerative medicine practice where I'm the medical director for regenerative medicine at Southern California University in beautiful Southern California, Whittier, California. We're going to be talking about the role of regenerative medicine therapies for patients with chronic pain, acute pain, and really 
um, interventional orthopedics um, and possibly the dogma shift for our treatments of our patients and possibly uh, the need for considering regenerative medicine therapies either as an early intervention or even as a late intervention for our patients with chronic pain. Yeah, and just so everybody knows, uh, they're on the faculty here, and uh, they've given some really great lectures in a breakout session. And uh, with that um, nice introduction, we've got one more to do. Go ahead, tell us about yourself. Hi, my name is Mills Rich. I'm the president and owner of BioRich Medical, which is a nationwide distribution organization that focuses and specializes in regenerative therapies. Uh, we carry a variety of areas of focus, such as uh, what's commonly known as PRP, or platelet-rich plasma, um, bone marrow concentrate, or um, BMAC. We also carry a scaffolding, an autologous scaffolding device called Proplas, which takes the platelet pore from PRP, creating a fibrin and protein scaffolding mechanism, which helps the PRP work better. And we also carry the newest technology, which concentrates a particular protein uh, referred to as A2M, which stands for the alpha-2 macroglobulin, which essentially captures these proteases that are running rampant in arthritic joint spaces. So a variety of different therapies and tools to supply those therapies, much aligned like a toolbox where you have a wrench, a hammer, and, and, a, and pliers, you have different tools for different applications. And then lastly, we have different imaging modalities which are required for these type of therapies as well, such as a full line of ultrasound equipment. Yeah, that's great. And uh, George... Um, you know, you, you just heard about all these products and everything. Now we've got to put them in context. What are we doing? Now, we've had some other podcasts on uh, regenerative medicine, but you, you two are leaders, and you're obviously a leader in, in products uh, and uh, services, including really good ultrasound equipment, that help us get our job done. So um, tell somebody from kind of like a naive standpoint what you do to help them with, ouch, I got tennis elbow, ouch, I got a knee problem. And uh, even, you know, Aaron, you're going to get into the disc here in a minute. We've got some really exciting therapies about uh, treating back pain. So take the joints first. So when you look at a patient with chronic osteoarthritis as, a, as one of our key examples uh, for regenerative medicine, uh, you look at this patient, and over time the expectation is that you have this overuse injury where over the course of time they will have gradual degradation of joint, cartilage, synovial lining. And the idea with our regenerative medicine therapies is that we're actually trying to slow that progression or ideally uh, turn that progression and turn it around so that patients with um, possibly early osteoarthritis, early injury, early disease, we can slow that progression or ideally even um, reverse it in the best case scenario. Yeah, it's really promising. So... What you were talking about earlier is we may actually either delay or maybe even in some cases eliminate the need to um, replace a joint or go in for surgery and a knee and clean it up, right? Absolutely. That's the goal, and, and I think that a lot of the literature right now suggests these things. Um, as an interventional pain physician, as someone who sees a lot of sports injuries, uh, you know, and as probably most of our listeners are aware of, 
um, we try to recommend surgery as a last-line intervention for all of our patients. Um, certainly when it's indicated, uh, that's the intervention. Um, but I think there will be, ideally at one point in time, where we'll shy more and more away from surgical intervention, more and more away from arthroplasty, and more towards interventional regenerative therapies. And, and we're not going to be using steroids in the future, I predict. It, uh, steroids um, were originally developed, and, and you know, it was a number of decades ago, and those folks, they got uh, a Nobel Prize, and that's great, but they also said, we should never use them. And uh, over, I guess, the years, we just started using steroids. Do you have a comment about that? Hans, that's a great, great point. So the thing that's fa- fascinating about um, how we practice with pain and actually a lot of parts of medicine is that we've learned to, or we've become in the fashion of using corticosteroids as almost a panacea. And you'll look at people who will almost treat it as pixie dust. So for instance, what's the evidence for using corticosteroids in trigger point injections or facet injections or medial branch blocks? And the truth is that for some of these indications, we have good evidence, and for some of them, we don't have a shred of evidence. And it's almost become dogma to put ad, to add corticosteroids to every single injection that we do. The interesting thing is, is that there's a lot of animal data that demonstrates that corticosteroids, and including local anesthetics, are actually incredibly toxic to soft tissues. They've been shown to be toxic to tendons, tenocytes. They've been shown to be toxic to cartilage cells. And so it's not unusual for us to see this. We have a patient that arrives to our clinic who is naive to injections of the body. They have maybe mild or moderate knee osteoarthritis, medial compartment. It smells and looks just like OA. We do an injection into the knee. The first injection might last six weeks, six months, maybe even 12 months. But the second injection has uh, rapidly decreasing results. Um, And quite frankly, I believe that we are actually creating more damage um, over time than we're um, than we'd like to be doing. Yeah, exactly right, um, Aaron. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to talk a little bit about the disc. This stuff is is uh, shockingly impressive. Uh, and just a little background about Aaron is pretty modest. He he has been injecting into the center of the disc. That's the squishy part between the bones of the back. Uh, what's called platelet-rich uh, plasma that has evolved into what? Well, we've been looking for a way to treat low back pain that is due to degenerative disc disease other than reconstructive spine surgery such as spinal fusion. And it has been an interesting journey to try to find treatments that are safe and efficacious for patients that have chronic low back pain. As you know, Hans, low back pain is nearly ubiquitous. Uh, It's uh, really a very common complaint that all physicians, including primary care providers, see in their offices on a daily basis. And if we had a reliable treatment for patients that have low back pain on the basis of degenerative disc disease, we would really be helped for a lot of people. There are a lot of patients out there that need our help and that we can help with some of these newer therapies. For years, we've looked at a variety of therapies to try to help patients with this problem. Some of them uh, are have come and gone historically, like IDET, which was a thermal therapy where we thought that by heating the uh, 
the junction between the annulus and the nucleus of the disc, we could seal some of the cracks and fissures in the disc or uh, denervate or destroy some of the nerve receptors in that area. And there were some early successes with IDET, but when it was subject to a rigorous clinical trial, unfortunately, it did not show the results that we hoped it would. From there, we went to a variety of other intradiscal applications and various uh, injection therapies into the disc that have all, in one way or another, been disappointing. So now... We are looking at whether we can harness the body's own healing power to treat degenerative disc disease with applications of platelet-rich plasma and bone marrow aspirate concentrate, which contains our own stem cells. Yeah, and so <clears throat> I, I touched on platelet-rich plasma. Your, your things that you do with your products kind of expand on commercially available products, um, and I'm going to come back to Aaron in two seconds. He's going to talk about what he is injecting now. Where would you inject what you have, um, say, as a recommendation to us? Um, and what products do you think come off the shelf as opposed to what Aaron and George are going to tell us come out of the human body that we harvest? Well, you're, you're referring specifically to an autologous product versus an allergenic product? Yes. Yeah, the, right now, the there's, it's really exciting what we potentially in the future could come up with as something that's not autologous that would be not only safe, but also that we could mass produce perhaps at a lot lower cost structure and do it in a less intrusive way than having to draw marrow or adipose or something of that nature. To date, there is some... Um, as Dr. Klodney's alluded to in some of his presentations here at, this, at the conference, Mieselblast is a company out of Australia that's done some impressive work. But And we're very optimistic as that product goes through its studies and, and, uh, and certifications and qualifications. But there are others in the pipeline as well. Not the problem, but it's kind of a double-edged sword to have been used, to be used here in the uh, U.S. The FDA obviously slows some things down, but it also protects us. And for that product, just using Mesoblast as an example, is some years off before it could actually be used commercially and sold here in the U.S. So in the meantime, other products that might be alluded to have stem cells, there's been conversation of amnion products that are essentially a tissue, it's an allograph tissue, uh, cannot legally show or display or market themselves as having stem cells. Uh, there's some conversation that they do have stem cells, and they might have some. But at the same time, there's stem cells in blood products and bone, bone marrow as well. So it really comes back to looking at amnion products, which is aloe, allergenic, not from the patient, that basically should be looked at fairly now as a basic PRP in a box. Let me, let me tell you why I'm trying to merge this together is that um, it's now looking like the infancy of regenerative medicine is evolving exactly where it needs to go to um, us creating what we would call, I, I guess we'd call the active nidus of the regenerative core to you maybe prov- uh, providing someday soon uh, some, something we can buy. And and that has been shown to be efficacious, but still a ways off. We've got some early promising results. Now, George... Tell us, and just kind of give us a, a brief overview, how do we get 
these cells or what we need uh, from us as patients um, to the point where we inject it? That's a great question, Hans. Um, there are certainly there's many places that you could derive some of these stem cells from the human body. In fact, even within your circulating peripheral blood, there is a certain concentration, dilute as it may be, as Mill certainly referred to or mentioned, within the human body. What we do like to do, though, is go to where these cells are most richly found. The two applications that are most popular right now are from the bone marrow, uh, also known as bone marrow aspirate concentration, and what's from the adipose, which is also known at some point once it's been processed as stromal vascular fraction. I'm going to focus mostly on bone marrow aspirate concentration. Um, now, this is actually a relatively easy procedure to be performed. Uh, they've found that the, prior, the largest uh, concentration of bone marrow cells, or, or rather stem cells in the, in the body, are actually found in the core or near the center, center of the body. That being said, such as the lumbar vertebrae or the iliac crest. Most practitioners, such as Dr. Kalani, um, Dr. Richard Rosenthal, and myself, we uh, prefer a posterior approach from the iliac crest. Um, this is processed through a type of collecting system where you centrifuge off some of the uh, non-desired product to isolate where we believe the predominant concentration of those mesenchymal stem cells are found and this is typically uh, added to a preparation of platelet-rich plasma before it's injected. Yeah, that's important because as you were talking and Aaron was talking too, it's the, it's not necessarily quantity, it's quality and it has to do with age of the patient that we're getting these from and has to do with the number of factors. Speak to that a bit. So that's actually an interesting topic as well, and it, there's some controversy surrounding that. In general, we know that the number of stem cells in the human body will uh, rapidly decrease over time. We know as a general dogma in regenerative medicine that younger patients that have are just healthier in general, um, have less diseases, chronic diseases, they do not smoke, they do not drink, they are not diabetic, that those patients do better as well. Also, if you have a disease, let's say, for instance, osteoarthritis, if you have early, mild, moderate disease, you also will do better as well. Um, and we do think that patients with less disease with, um, and that are younger and healthier have also better stem cells. There is some data that has been presented by some uh, very vocal practitioners in the community that is uh, from collected within their own system that is contradictory to that. Um, we certainly believe that it's still controversial. We do, in general, th believe that patients, again, who are younger and healthier do have better outcomes. Yeah, but that's, that's an important point. We can do this from to an 18-year-old athlete up to a 90-year-old um, uh, individual who still wants to be active and, and save a joint. Aaron, speak to that. Yeah, Hans, there is... Uh uh, evidence that uh, although the number of stem cells declines uh, throughout uh, our life cycle, that there still are adequate cells, even in octogenarians, to exert a clinical effect. Uh, there's some excellent work done by Dr. Philippe Ernigo, who is uh, the 
uh, chairman of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Paris in Paris, France, where he has looked specifically at patients 80 and older uh, that were candidates for knee replacement surgery and treated them with autologous bone marrow injection, uh, concentrated marrow injection, and uh, uh, found uh, that the treatment was efficacious either even uh, in these older individuals. So I don't believe that there is an age that after which the treatment is no longer viable. I think that if the marrow is harvested properly and prepared properly and injected properly, efficacy can be seen even in older individuals. Yeah, on this podcast, we've often talked about interventional procedures, and the number one concern patients have about interventional procedures is pain. And when people hear bone marrow aspirate, they think, uh, ouch, and it can be done right, can it? Yes, bone marrow aspiration uh, uh, is uh, uh, actually a very simple interventional procedure for uh, spine interventionalists. It can be done either using ultrasound as guidance or fluoroscopy, x-ray as guidance. Uh, The skin and the superficial tissues uh, should be anesthetized with a local anesthetic. And most importantly, the covering of the bone called the periosteum is rich in nerve endings. That must be infiltrated with local anesthetic. But once the periosteum is numbed, placing the specialized needle into the marrow cavity takes a little tap-tap with either the hand or a hammer and is not generally felt as painful by the patient. There is a bit of soreness after the procedure, but no more than you would uh, expect after any sort of spine intervention procedure. We uh, generally will offer our patients either uh, an oral sedative or a small amount of IV sedative, but it's really not necessary, and some patients prefer to have the procedure done with no sedation at all. Okay. Round the, round the table. We'll wrap it up. Aaron, where's uh, regenerative medicine going in the near future? What what can you anticipate its its big leaps? Well, regenerative medicine is going uh, to become uh, more widely uh, utilized and more widely accepted as our fundamental database of uh, scientific information becomes greater. Uh, we have now some. Uh, a fledgling uh, uh, evidence base for these procedures, but that is growing. As there's more interest, there's more people looking at clinical research, and there's more clinical research being done. There's uh, currently uh, literally hundreds of studies using mesenchymal stem cells and hundreds, if not thousands, of studies uh, uh, ongoing uh, uh, and publications uh, over the last several years using uh, platelet-rich plasma. Uh, intradiscal application, which is something I'm very interested in, uh, is uh, uh, becoming uh, uh, more commonly used. Uh, one of the problems with the degenerative disc is that it loses its ability to hang on to water. Uh, there are molecules in the disc called proteoglycans that help hang on to water that keep the disc hydrated. It loses its proper uh, uh, collagen content, uh, and uh, there are specific cells called chondrocytes within the uh, uh, the nuclear matrix of the disc that help uh, to produce uh, uh, and uh, uh, keep the uh, proper balance between the uh, degradation and the production of new matrix. And these sorts of uh, molecules, that is the production of proteoglycans and uh, 
the production of proper collagen can be fostered by the injection of both platelet-rich plasma and mesenchymal stem cells. So I think you're going to see much more activity in uh, the area of the degenerative disc for the treatment of low back pain with regenerative therapies in the future. Probably the SI and facet too, don't you think? Yeah. Yes, uh, SI uh, joint and facet joint, another uh, interesting area uh, where there needs to be more study. Uh, certainly we have quite a bit of information about the knee. Uh, uh, George uh, uh, and I have published uh, uh, recently uh, a paper about the comparison of the use of uh, regenerative products, specifically PRP, uh, and a uh, established product called uh, hyaluronic acid for... Uh, uh, treatment of mild to moderate osteoarthritis of the knee and these other joints uh, uh, are similar. Uh, they're different, but they have similarities to the knee, uh, the facet joints uh, and the SI joint. And uh, we are hopeful that they respond in the same beneficial manner that we've seen uh, in uh, 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 the studies that are available looking at osteoarthritis of the knee. George, tell us, tell us what you think. I mean, where are we going to be? Not now, but five years from now. You know, I completely agree with, with what Dr. Kalani has said, and I, I do believe that there needs to be a shift in the treatment algorithms that we look at and we treat our patients with. Currently, if you believe uh, that the corticosteroids and local anesthetics that we're utilizing for a lot of our pain procedures certainly have systemic side effects, they also are chondrotoxic and tenotoxic, meaning that they are actually causing more damage and more harm over time then we do need to have a shift. Regenerative products you know, have been demonstrated to be pro-anabolic, upregulating uh, anabolic genes, creating anabolic proteins, and actually downregulating catabolic proteins. Uh, the same has been shown, or the corollary is that local anesthetics and corticosteroids have been demonstrated to be the opposite, which is creating a catabolic processes in these same tissues. I believe that the important point in this is that we need to have a shift in our treatment algorithms um, for all things that possibly hurt, but especially for what we call categorically as degenerative diseases and degenerative processes in the human body, and that there will be more and more research uh, done in this area. Certainly, there's a lot of research going on in this realm with PRP, and there's a lot of it already being published, um, and more and more studies for mesenchymal stem cells and other uh, stem cell-derived um, uh, therapies. We're going to have more studies coming out um, at some point, as uh, both of the other speakers have mentioned. I believe that there will be a shift towards um, some form of off-the-shelf product. Uh, certainly, Mesoblast out of Australia was mentioned. And I think that we're going to finally get to a point where we are doing, truly doing, not only do no harm, but actually doing good and, and possibly... I agree. Turning people in the other direction. Yeah. Closing thoughts? Well, this has all been just really fantastic. This meeting just just reverberates uh, over a lot of different topics. But the regenerative medicine is clearly a, a main component and a growing component of the overall conversation uh, for these issues that patients have on a daily basis. I would say, uh, echoing what Dr. Claudine and Dr., uh, Dr. Chen James had mentioned regarding these studies that are underway, the therapy really has gotten ahead of the science, and the science is basically catching up. Kind of a new phenomenon, but you've had a lot of these pro athletes, big celebrities who do this. It gets in the news, and people, and they get good results, which is all anecdotal. And then you get 
uh, the regular uh, guy on the weekend, the weekend warrior who has pain, and he goes, hey, what about this blood or PRP thing that I hear about? So the anecdotal, the positive anecdotal work, finally is the science is catching up to it, which is necessary and valuable. So we really applaud all the effort that's going into validating this good therapy that's going on right now. And it's been very rewarding and enriching to be a part of that whole journey. Let me give you just a little personal story. Um, Although we probably all know somebody that has dabbled in this a bit, my uh, daughter's horse uh, that is used uh, also as a, a volunteer horse for Special Olympics got kicked by another horse and had a little uh, soft tissue and fracture. I don't know what they call it. But we ended up injecting stem cells, and that horse is now back out back out and at it again. So um, that's uh, there's some historical thoughts on racehorses and that sort of thing. But personally, I've seen this stuff work. I would agree with that. Uh, you know, we see it uh, every day in our practice. Uh, on a personal note, I've treated a lot of family members as well, uh, including my daughter, who Kayla, who is a professional ballerina in Florida, uh, who had uh, an Achilles tendonitis, tendinopathy, that was recalcitrant and was making it difficult for her to dance. Uh, she had a single treatment of PRP. This was about four or five years ago. And she continues her professional career uh, without any recurrence of her uh, oh, that's great. Uh, tendinopathy. Yeah, it is great. That's a home run. Yeah, it is a home run. George, anything last uh, last word here? Uh, Hans, I, I'm excited about the future of regenerative medicine. As David Cloth says, this is this is the next big thing, and it's really something that interventional pain physicians should really consider adding to their practice, and I can wholeheartedly agree with that. I'm going to corner David tomorrow. He couldn't be with us tonight, uh, but uh, David gave the talk, and David's been a friend of mine for a long time. He was an ex-ASA president, too, um, NAN's president, uh, and very knowledgeable. So we've gotten, uh, we've gotten a good tsunami of information here on regenerative medicine. So what I get to do is have you all back in a year or two, and we'll know more. And we'll talk more. Other than that, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you. There you go, Aaron. Safe trip home. Thanks so much, Hans. I enjoyed it. See you at the booth tomorrow. (laughs) All I'll end up with is uh, it is the future, but the future is now. Thanks, guys. So they were uh, pretty, pretty tremendous information sources, weren't they? So I'm very appreciative, and I thank them so much for coming on. If you have any questions for them or for us at paininformation.com, please go there and please leave a review at iTunes. It really helps us rank. I know I keep saying that, but it's important to do that so that other people can find us. And I appreciate every uh, bit of input I get. And I have had a few people ask me about uh, uh, opioid overdose. And I, I guess this is something very interesting uh, to uh, I guess family members, they're they're scared. It, I understand that, and they want to know about uh, naloxone in particular. That's Narcan. So I'm going to be adding to that in a upcoming episode. So look for that, and uh, a lot of other really exciting topics. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. So come on back.